0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This is the final uh, night we're going to look at this, uh, the the mystery and the miracle of Israel. Part 4, and we're continuing regarding Israel uh, and the church. Now, the book of Romans uh, is by far uh, the longest letter that Paul wrote to any church. It is 16 chapters long. That's a long, long letter. No one is sure who founded the church at Rome. Certainly wasn't Paul because uh, he never even had visited Rome at the time of writing this letter wasn't Peter because Peter didn't visit till later on either. It probably was somebody that got saved on the day of Pentecost. If you read Acts 2 and you see the list of the nations that was involved uh, and, and, and cities and so forth, you'll see that Rome, uh, there's people who came from Rome, Jews and proselytes it said. So it may be or it could be that one of those gone back to Rome, had got saved in, at Pentecost in Jerusalem, gone back to Rome and began church. And uh, there are lots of suggestions then why Paul wrote such a long letter to this congregation that he had never visited, he had never seen, that they had never seen him. Why in the world did he write such a long letter? Well, there are various suggestions by different writers, but I think the simple answer was that because he was not personally known to them, because he had never visited them in the flesh. And although they have heard of him, everybody had heard of Paul, but he was not their founder, he was not their apostle in that sense. Uh, Therefore, he needed to take his time. He he needed to, uh, before he broached the subject that he really wanted to get to, he had to take his time to get there. He had to get their confidence, and he had to ease his way into the conversation as it were. you ever talked to somebody and you want to say something and it takes you a while to get around to it? Well, this is what it was like for Paul. And so what was the subject that he was really trying to broach? The subject was simply this. There was a tension between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers that had come into the church at Rome. Now, you understand that Paul is writing here some 30 years after Christ, and a lot had happened in that three decades uh, in the church. Uh, for instance, there was tremendous missionary endeavors, particularly by Paul and others, and the church now had reached out even as far as Italy and Rome. And so there was a lot happening. There was a great spread of the gospel had been going on, and by this time there was actually, after thirty years Christ died, there was actually more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. And so whoever took the message back to Rome, and whoever began the church, uh, it started out initially as a Jewish congregation, messianic Jewish congregation. But then they would evangelize in the city, they would share the gospel, and Gentiles would get saved, and they would come into the church, and so there would be a mixed congregation for a while. But then Emperor Claudius, in the, somewhere in the, the 50s AD, uh, I can't go into all the reasons for this, but he decided that the Jews would have to get out of Rome. He would throw all the Jews out of Rome. He'd tell them to go and, to, and get out of Rome. So that left, then, in the church at Rome, only the Gentile believers. And then several years passed, maybe 12, 15 years had passed, and Nero then came into power, and he decided to invite the Jews back again into Rome. And so quite naturally then, the the Jewish believers, they wanted to come back to what they felt was their congregation also. Uh, But the Gentile believers by this time didn't want them to come in. Because now they felt, well, we're a Gentile church, and uh, and we have superseded the Jewish believers, even uh, because now we're the real church, as it were. So Paul, hearing this, immediately saw this is a big problem. This is going to cause a lot of problems within the church, not only in Rome, but this spreads, and so he's going to have to to deal with it. And that's why he started then to write this uh, wonderful letter to the church uh, at Rome. Now, some believe that this was the start of what's called replacement theology, or fulfillment theology, as some other people call it, uh, that the church had, had, was now fulfilling the role that, uh, that Christ wanted, and, and, the, and the Jewish people in and and, and Israel was no longer counted at all with God. And we talked a lot about that even this morning and last week. Now, Paul has to deal with this image because it's going to do some damage And at the very heart of the very message he wants to get to is found in chapters 9, 10, 11. So he he takes eight chapters to get to what he really, really, really wants to talk about. And and he takes his time to do that. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's one of the greatest books in the New Testament. So he's a very long lead-in to get to the heart of what he really wants to say. And so in the first three chapters, which we're not going to read, obviously, uh, first of all, he tells the Gentiles that they are sinners. Then in chapter 2, he tells the Jews that they also are sinners. And they're all in the same boat. All of them are sinners. And then in chapter 3, he says, Everybody's a sinner, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, in chapter 1, if you would read it, which we have many times, you'd find that the, the Gentile sin was quite open and blatant and obvious. I mean, the second half of that chapter is a whole litany of their sins, and they're awful, terrible. But when you read chapter 2, the Jews were different. They had wrapped themselves in a kind of a cloak of self-righteousness. They had the law and they had the, the covenants and uh, you know, and they had all of this and they had the ceremonial rites and they had circumcision and so forth. But Paul says they're still sinners and they need to be saved like everybody else. So the only answer then to that problem of sin is faith in Christ. That's the only problem. The answer then is the only answer today. It's no different. And so therefore in chapter 4, if you would read that, he talks about the faith of Abraham. And he introduces this whole subject about faith, the faith of Abraham. All who shares Abraham's faith are Abraham's sons. The Jews had the commandments of God, the oracles of God, the prophets, the covenants, the law, but they failed. They were Abraham's sons in the flesh, but not in faith. And Paul tells them that in no uncertain terms. Now, the Gentiles had their conscience. Everybody's got a conscience, but the Gentiles had a conscience which, in a way, they they suppressed. They they put it aside, and by doing that, they rejected the truth. Uh, God, things made very clear to all Gentiles that there is a God. He's a creator God, but they reject it, and people are still rejecting that very thought even to this day. And so, both now need to have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, we are justified by faith, chapter 5 tells us, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have access by faith into his grace by which we stand. And so, tonight I, I want to, as we go through this, there are four areas that I want to touch on. Uh, we can't really go in, in great depth because of time, but four areas... Natural Israel and Spiritual Israel, and how Israel's belief and unbelief how it benefit us and benefits indeed the whole world, and then the one olive tree. What does that mean? And then the difference between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles, and there's a difference between those two. Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles. Paul talked about the fullness of the Gentiles. And so, in chapter 5, he talks about faith. He talks about Christ taking our place. He talks about death and Adam, life in Christ. In chapter 6, uh, he, he, he's telling the Gentiles, do not backslide. Do not let sin have dominion over you. Do not let sin rule your life. Die to it. Don't be a slave to sin. Be a slave to Christ. And then in chapter 7, he tells the, the Jews, the Jewish believers, do not go back onto the law. The Gentiles had a tendency to go back onto those sins that they used to do. The Jews had a tendency to go back onto the law, which they were brought up in. And so Paul said, do not go back onto the law. The law cannot save you. The law is actually a good thing. It's good in itself. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law shows us that we, we are wrong. It shows us that we are sinners so that it can point us to Christ. But he says, do not go back onto the law because the law cannot save. Only Christ can save. And so he's trying to be even-handed here. But he wants to really get to what he really wants to talk about in a moment. And in a chapter 8... He tells us how they can be free in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. In verses 11 to 17, he talks about sonship through the Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verses 31 39, God is for us. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so now at last, Paul is coming to the heart of his message to the church at Rome. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is the greatest theology regarding Israel and the church. If you want to know the theology of Israel and the church, it's in these three chapters, particularly chapter 11 which we'll come to just in a moment. This spells the death knell for replacement theology. Theology it's sometimes called fulfillment theology. Sadly, the church has largely ignored it, and the result has not been good. And we talked about that this morning the problem that Jews have for Christians, the history of Jews and Christians is not good. Uh, they've been treated shamefully, by and large, by the church over many centuries. And so, most preachers today, then, consequently, will preach on chapters 1 through 8 and say, Well, that's Paul's gospel. Uh, And then when it comes to chapters 9 and 10, they'll read that and say, See, that's the reason why God has abandoned. That's the reason why God has, has cut them off. That's the reason why the church is now God's purposes and God's affections. And then when it comes to chapter 11, they skip it completely. And they pick up again at chapters 12 right through to 16. Peter Sukahira, who's a, who's a pastor in, in hi-fi who Gary and I heard at a conference in Jerusalem in January. Uh, he's a Japanese, he's son of a diplomat. He says, I've got a, an Asian face, I speak with an American accent, and I'm an Israeli citizen. <laughs> and he is a very, very excellent speaker and author. And he calls this, when you get to chapter 11 and you miss it, he says, this is blink theology. You blanket that, and you skip it. Blink theology. And I was thinking about that, you know, I think every one of us has got a touch of blink theology. Did you ever come to one of those portions of Scripture and you really didn't like it because it was touching you? And, and you came to it, and you thought, hmm, not too sure about that. I'll just turn that over. I'll just blink as if that's not there. I think we all have portions of Scripture that, that we try to avoid. Or we say, well, I'll deal with that another day, but right now, I don't know if I can handle that right now, and it's blank theology. Uh, you know, whenever you read Hebrews 11, uh, you read about all the heroes of faith, uh, and we love that. And how many sermons have you heard on Hebrews 11 about the heroes of faith? Thousands probably. But we come down to verse 35 and we blink because we don't like what that says from there on. How that not all received the promises and how some were stoned and sawn asunder and treated as the offscoring of the earth. And so we blink at that point because, mm, don't want to read that. I like the faith bit, but I don't like that bit. And so there's lots of examples. Uh, you know, when you, when you read Matthew 5 and you read the Beatitudes and, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. And only, Well, I'd love to be, I think I'm a peacemaker, you know, and so forth. And, and blessed are those who mourn for against sin. Well, I, you know, I have pretty strong opinions regarding sin, so that's okay. But then you come right on down to, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness and say, oh, <laughs> I don't like that, so I'll blink <laughs> I'll move on. Uh, so we all have those scriptures that we really need to deal with, but we try not to. And so, uh, Peter Sakakuri said that that's what happens when it comes to chapter 11 in Romans. And it's been happening for years and years and years. And we just skip over that. And the trouble is, when we skip over that, we miss what Paul's really getting to in the book of Romans. And so, I want to begin reading. Now, I'm going to read here tonight from the New Living Translation, just simply because it'll just make it a little bit easier for you uh, just to to grasp in your mind, right? So it sort of paraphrases it somewhat for you. So in chapter 9, Paul writes, In the presence of Christ, I speak with utter truthfulness. I do not lie. And my conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm that what I am saying is True. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? I wonder, has any of us ever, ever prayed something out regarding our loved ones? Because that's what Paul's praying He says, if it meant me being cut off, if it meant me going to hell instead of my brethren, he said, I would do it. That's how deeply he felt for his brethren, the Jews. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's special children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave his law to them. They have the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Their ancestors were great people of God, and Christ himself was a Jew as far as human nature is concerned, and he is God who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And so uh, he begins here, he's getting to the heart of this, because remember that the Gentiles are against the Jews here in this church. And he says, no, no, this shouldn't be because it's one new man in Christ. Uh, and so he, he's, he's elevating the, pe- the Jewish people here in, in the Gentiles' eyes. He does more of that a little bit later. Well then, verse 6, well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to the Jews? No. Because that's what it seemed like because after all, Claudius has just kicked them out of Rome. So if they're God's people, why is that happening? Maybe that's because God has rejected them because of what they did to Jesus. So this is the mentality. This has been the mentality down through the church age, and I showed you that this morning by the, by the statements from church fathers. So he says, well, then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to the Jews? No, for not, <laughs> and, and this is a bombshell, isn't it? For not everyone born into a Jewish family is truly a Jew. Just the fact that they are descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. Wow. That's some statement. Hmm. You see, this is getting now to this point, this first point that I put on the screen. The difference between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. And there is a difference. Big difference. And Paul makes this clear as we go on, you'll see it becoming much more clear. In fact, if I could just flip back a little bit to chapter two of Romans, you don't need to do this, but I, I do it for you. In verse twenty five of chapter two, he says the Jewish circumcision, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision is worth something only if you obey God's law. But if you now he's talking here to he's talking here to these Jews. Only if you obey God's law. But if you do not obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God give them all the rights and honors of being his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will be much better off than you Jews who are circumcised and know so much about God's law but do not obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the Jewish ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not cutting of the body, but a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. Whoever is that kind of chain change seeks praise from God, not from people. So he sent him, Listen, you've got that circumcision right. And you've done that, but if you're not obeying God's law, you're no better off than the ones who hasn't done it. (laughs) The true Jew, he says, true Israel, is those who obey God, who love the Lord. We'll see more of this in a moment. Then, in chapter three, he goes on. He's he's answering the question that people now are asking. Then, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the Jewish ceremony of circumcision? Yes. Being a Jew has many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. This is what I've been telling you in the series of studies. God has chosen the Jewish people to be the vehicle of redemption for the world. And he's shown that through giving us Jesus through them. So they have a redemptive purpose. Paul's saying this. (laughs) So, yes, being a Jew, has many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful. But just because they broke their promises, does that mean God will break His promises? Of course not. Though everyone else in the world is a liar, God is true. As the Scripture said, He will be proved right in what He says, and He will win His case in court. Now, lest you be confused... What Paul's saying is this. Take the Jewish people, right? God looks at them, and he's got a plan for them. There's a plan in the natural, and there's a plan in the spiritual. The plan in the natural goes back 4,000 years when God gave Abraham the covenant to possess the land. But the plan in the spiritual is that they turn to Christ. They haven't done that yet. But one day they will. We'll come to that in a moment. So, what advantage is there being a Jew? God has entrusted them, God has used them as a people to be the vehicle of Word redemption so that his word would come through them, he entrusted his word to them, the prophets and so forth, and most of all, his son Jesus came through the Jewish race and went to that cross to die for the whole world. So, he goes on then explaining, well, let's just read it. So, for the Scriptures say, this is chapter 9, again, for the... Well, chapter 9, verse 7. Just the fact that they're descendants of Abraham doesn't make them true to Abraham's children. For the Scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too... This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God in the spiritual sense that we're talking about. It is the children of the promise who are considered to be Abraham's children. For God has promised, next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he grew up, he married Rebekah and gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. And this message proves that God chooses according to his own plan, not according to our good or bad works. She was told, The descendants of your older son will serve the descendants of your younger son. In the words of Scripture, I love Jacob, but I reject Esau. So what can we say? Was God being unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So receiving God's promise is not up to us. We can't get it by choosing it or working hard for it. God will show mercy to anyone he chooses. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you, so that my fame might spread throughout the earth. So you see, God shows mercy to some just because he wants to, he chooses to make some people refuse to listen. Well, then, you may say, what does God blame people for not? Why does God blame people for not listening? Hasn't they simply done what he made them to do? No, he says, do not say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to criticize God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration, another to throw garbage into? God has every right to exercise his judgment and his power. He also has a right to be very patient with those who are objects of judgment, of his judgment, and are only for destruction. He has also the right to pour out the riches of his glory upon those he prepared to be objects of his mercy, even upon us whom he selected, both Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Isaiah, those who were not my people, I will call my people. I will love those who did not love before. And once they were told, you're not my people, but now he will say, you are children of the living God. Concerning Israel, as I the prophet cried, Through the people Israel, Uh, though the people Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a small number will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And as Isaiah said in another place, if the Lord, God Almighty, has 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 not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well then, what shall we say about these things? Just this. The Gentiles have been made right with God by faith, even though they were not seeking him. But the Jews, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law and being good instead of depending on faith. They stumbled over that great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall but anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. And so Paul is making us understand that there's the natural Israel, and out of that there is the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the true Jew, the spiritual Jew, the ones who put their faith and trust in Christ himself. Then he goes on chapter 10. Dear friends... The longing of my heart and my prayer to God is that Jewish people might be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Instead, they're clinging to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They won't go along with God's way, for God has commanded, sorry, for God has accomplished the whole purpose of the law. Christ fulfilled all the law. All who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses wrote that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all its commands. But the way of getting right with God through faith says you don't need to bring him up to heaven to find Christ and bring him down to help you. As it says, you don't need to go to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. Salvation comes from trusting Christ, which is the message we preach is already within easy reach. In fact, the Scriptures say the message is close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And then the famous verse that we read, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the Scriptures tell us, anyone who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have all the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all who ask for them. For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will, en- and how will anyone tell them without being sent? That is what the scriptures mean when they say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For as I the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? Yet faith comes from listening to the message of the good news, the good news about Christ. But what about the Jews? Have they actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message of God's creation has gone out to everyone and its words to all the world. But did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even the, even the time of Moses, God has said, I will arouse your jealousy by blessing other nations. I will make you angry by blessing foolish Gentiles. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God. I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to them who were not asking for me. But, Israel, but regarding Israel, God said, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they kept disobeying me and arguing with me. Another reason why replacement theology points to that and says, well, there you are. There's the reasons why God has rejected them. That's why He's cut them off. But listen, and listen carefully. There is the spiritual Jew... There is the natural Jew. There's spiritual Israel and there's natural Israel. And the promises of the covenant God made through Abraham to natural Israel, he will keep. Even though they have rejected him, even though this very day they do not recognize his son as their Messiah, But he will keep his promises. Even though they break their promises, he will keep his. And he's keeping it. And the whole thrust of these messages I've been sharing with you is showing you that God still keeps his word. Even when we are unfaithful, God will keep his word. And he's keeping it to those people. But out of natural Israel is coming a true Israel, spiritual Israel, the true Jew, who is circumcised in heart. And thank God they're growing in number. I said, I think it was in the first study, that in 1948 there was just literally a handful of Jewish believers in Israel. Now there's thousands. So that is coming true bit by bit, but not on a national scale, but bit by bit. Now, chapter 11. I asked then, Has God rejected his people, the Jews? Of course not. King James says, certainly not. (laughs) No way. God has not rejected his people. Remember that I myself am a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you remember what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And do you not remember God's reply? He said, you are not the only one left. I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today. For not all the Jews have turned away from God. A few are being saved as a result of God's kindness in choosing them. And if they're saved by God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's wonderful kindness would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the Jews have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen, but the rest were made unresponsive. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep to this very day has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. And David spoke of the same thing when he said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessing cause them to stumble. Let their eyes go blind that they cannot see and their backs grow weaker and weaker. Now, here's the amazing thing. And this is the mystery of Israel. God allowed that. God did that in order to bless you and me and the rest of the world. <laughs> Listen. Isaiah's sorry, Israel's belief and Israel's unbelief. Israel's belief caused the patriarchs to trust God. And live a life of faith, and bring us the Word of God, and through the nation of Israel, bring us Christ. That was their belief. But their unbelief, rejecting Christ as Messiah, putting Him on the cross, crucifying Him, their unbelief caused God to turn to the Gentiles. <laughs> so they blessed the world and their belief. The whole world's a better place because of the Scriptures, because of the Bible. And the trouble is the world's turned against the Scriptures and the Bible today. And if they turn to it, they'd be far better off, but they aren't. But that was a tremendous blessing to the whole world, their belief. But their unbelief has become a great blessing to the world also, because that gave us Jesus. That gave us a cross. That gave us salvation for us Gentiles. And this is a mystery. Who else but God would have thought that up? Then he says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. His purpose was to make a salvation available to the Gentiles. And then the Jews would be jealous and want it for themselves. (laughs) You know, you and I are supposed to make them jealous. The church is supposed to make the Jews jealous. Because we have got what they should have got. But instead of making them jealous, we make them angry by condemning them and treating them badly. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because of the Jew, because the Jews turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when the Jews finally accept it. (laughs) You know, everywhere the Jews go, they're a blessing. Even though they're persecuted and they're hounded and they're put down and they're kicked out and all the rest of it. Everywhere they go, they're a blessing even in their own country. I don't know if you saw that YouTube uh, article that was on Facebook the other day. It was, it was a young man, and he was talking about this boycotting against Israel. And he said, if well, you're going to boycott against Israel, I said, well, then why did not you start boycotting this? And he listed all the stuff over our iPads and our phones and uh, medical things. He listed all the stuff that Israel has invented. He said, go ahead and boycott all that. Of course they won't. Sure they won't. No. I remember years ago in Northern Ireland, this is going back a while Trouble's really bad. And uh, <laughs> the Protestants, particularly, <laughs> uh, you know, they were, they, were, they were saying, well, we won't buy anything from the South and we'll boycott Barry's Tea and all this stuff. And it was, uh, but they didn't boycott Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't boycott <laughs> Arthur Guinness. <laughs> no, 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 even though it was made in Dublin. <laughs> it just shows you what hypocrites we can be if we really want to be. So he said... I am saying all of this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me the apostle to the Gentiles. I lay great stress on this, for I want to find a way to make the Jews want what you Gentiles have. In that way, I might save some of them. For since the Jews' rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, how much more wonderful their acceptance will be. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham... the other patriarchs were holy. Their children will also be holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, then the branches will be holy also. Then he goes on to talk about this olive tree. So just bear with me a little bit more. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the Jews, have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree were grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God had promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of this special olive tree. My battery's getting low on my iPad. That's why I was need to hurry up then. <laughs> so if I talk faster, you'll know the reason why. <laughs> God has promised Abraham and his children sharing in God's rich nourishment of a special olive tree. But you must be careful not to brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. Remember, you're just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches, the Jews, were broken off because they didn't believe God. And you're there because you do believe So don't think highly of yourself. Don't brag about this. But fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the branches he put there in the first place, he won't spare you either. (coughs) Now notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who disobeyed, but he's kind to you as you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. Boy, that's a big, big statement there, which I haven't time to go into. I tell you, that's a big one. The church has fought over statements of God for centuries. And if the Jews turn from their belief, sorry, if the Jews turn from their unbelief, God will graft them back into the tree again. He has power to do it. For if God was willing to take you who were by nature branches from a wild olive tree and graft you into his own good tree, a very unusual thing to do, he will be far more eager to graft in the Jews back into the tree where they belong. So, Paul uses the illustration of an olive tree. And those unbelieving branches he cut off. Even though they were Jews, he cut them off. Only the believing ones mix up the olive tree. And those of us who were Gentiles, who were unbelieving but became believing, he grafted in. So there's one olive tree, a pure olive tree of believers, both Jew and Gentile together. Are you still with me? So Paul uses this illustration. So you and I, today, are part of God's olive tree. But he says, don't brag against the Jews. Don't put them down. He says, you're not the root, you're only a branch. And it's only because they rejected Christ that you get in. (laughs) So he's telling these Roman Gentiles, now don't you be bragging. Don't you be bad. Don't you be dis..." You know, don't disrespect those Jewish believers. Because if it hadn't been for the Jews rejecting Christ, you'd never have been in this olive tree. But now you are. So appreciate it and be thankful for it, as we all should. Amen? Then he says, I want you to understand. We're almost finished. I want you to understand this mystery, dear friends, so that you will not feel proud and start bragging. Some of the Jews have had hard hearts, But this will last only until the complete number of Gentiles come to Christ. The King James says, until the fullness of the Gentiles. Let me show you these two scriptures. Jesus in Luke 21, answering his disciples about what's it going to be like in the end times. What's the signs going to be like? And further down in verse 24, he says, this is the new King James. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, right now, as we have been looking at in these for this. Right now, the Jews are back into their own country. Right now, they're in control of Jerusalem. For thousands of years, uh, you, you go to the book of Daniel, and you read all of the empires that has come against Israel and come against Jerusalem. All the way through, several of them, about seven of them. But now, since 1948, they've taken control of Jerusalem, they have their own land. But but there's a big but. There's another's gonna come against them, the Antichrist. And for three and a half years, Jerusalem again will be trampled underfoot. Christian Zionist, Zionist doesn't like to hear that. But it's true, it's in the book of Revelation. But there will come a point. And there will come a day, and Revelation shows it, when that Gentile trampling will be over forever. (laughs) Never, ever, ever to happen again. I wish it wouldn't happen again now, but it will. There's going to be an alignment of nations that will come against Jerusalem. Russia will be one of them. But there's going to come a time When Jesus talked about it there, when the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled completely and totally. Now, Romans 11, here we just read, Paul, verse 25 and 26, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this very mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, I explained that this morning, their blindness is partial, it's not permanent. It's there right now, but it's not permanent. One day their eyes will be open. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's why in the New Living Translation, it says it very nicely there. Until the complete number of Gentiles come to Christ. Mm. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Is there any better reason why the word should be evangelized than that? Hmm? There's still some nations, some people groups that has not yet heard the gospel. They've heard of Coca-Cola, but they haven't heard of Christ, which is a shame, isn't it? And so God wants his gospel to go to the ends of the earth till every last Gentile that's going to get saved gets saved because he's going to do something with Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. And that's in the plan of God. That's in the heart of God. Do you remember what the prophet said about this? A deliverer will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel from all ungodliness, and then I will keep my covenant with them and take away their sins? Many of the Jews are not enemies of the good news, but this has been to your benefit, for God has given his gifts to you, Gentiles. Yet the Jews are still his chosen people because of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the Jews refused his mercy, God was merciful to you instead. And now, in the same way, the Jews are rebels, and God's mercy has come to you. But someday they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned all people in their own disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? And who could ever give him back so much that he would, that he would have to pay it back? For everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. Ah. So I hope that you can see what God has been doing and what he is doing and what he will do in the future. And I hope that you understand that when the spotlight becomes more and more and more and more on that tiny little strip of land, Israel, that there's a purpose for that, a scriptural prophetical purpose for that, that the politicians don't even begin to understand. They just do not get it. As far as I'm concerned, it's politics, it's economy, it's race, it's whatever. But it's spiritual at its very, very heart. Amen? Now... I want to finish with a little aside tonight, all right? What's that on the screen? That is the logo for the European Union, isn't it? Twelve stars. I got my new driving license recently. They only gave me three years. Isn't that terrible when you get to a certain age? I thought I was going to get ten, but I must reckon I'm going to live that long, so they give me three That doesn't encourage you, does it? And on the top left hand corner, you'll see the same little logo. You'll see it in many cars in the top left hand corner of their number plate. Twelve stars. Why twelve? That doesn't represent the many countries that's in the European Union because there's 28 in it. It's supposed to represent solidarity and unity between the nations, and we're not seeing much of that either, are we? Not in the European Union, we're not. But that's what it's supposed to be. But this particular image is very important. And in 1987, following the adoption of the flag by the EEC, Arsene Heights, one of the designers who submitted proposals for the flag's design, he suggested a religious designation for it. And he claimed that the circle of stars was based on the tradition of showing the Blessed Virgin Mary as the woman of the apocalypse wearing a crown of 12 stars. Now in Revelation uh, chapter 12, uh, if you read there, you'll see a woman. Well, well, let me just read just a little bit of that. The twelve stars on her head. But let me just read just a slight bit. Uh, Revelation 12:1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labour and in pain to give birth. "'Another sign appeared in heaven. "'Behold, a great fiery red dragon "'having seven heads and ten horns "'and seven diadems on his heads. "'And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven "'and threw them down to the earth. "'And the dragon stood before the woman "'who was ready to give birth "'to devour the child as soon as it was born. "'And she bore a male child "'who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. "'And her child was caught up to God and his throne. "'Then the woman fled into the wilderness.' There was a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days or three and a half months. Now, I haven't time to go into all the details of that. If you want to know, teaching on the book of Revelation there, it's part 16 or something like that. You go into this in detail. But, sufficient to say this. It looks like, when you read that casually, it looks like this is the Virgin Mary giving birth to Christ. And the stars on her head, if you go back to Genesis 37, where Joseph had that dream with the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, he was the 12th one, bound down in obeisance before him. And we know the story of Joseph in Egypt and all that. And so the Roman Catholic Church, to this day, takes that, Revelation 12, as this is Mary, this has given birth to the man child who ruled with the rod of iron and was caught up into heaven. That is not what Revelation is saying at all. It looks like it, but it's not. Because Revelation is not talking about Christ's first advent. It's talking about his second advent. Not about his first coming, but his second coming. John would be familiar with Jesus' birth. (laughs) He didn't know the end of that. The old Christian church is familiar with that. It's talking about something else. Actually, the woman is Israel. And what she's given birth to is the man-child is the 144,000 Jews who would be great Jewish evangelists who would go around the whole earth and could not be touched, could not be killed, and in the end were caught up into heaven. But that's another story. If you want to know the depth of that, go into Revelation that I've taught a few years back. Now, just to show you, there is a typical iconic image of the Virgin Mary with the 12 stars around her head now the European Union now the man who had the inspiration for this uh, who said that that would be a religious iconic thing to do and that was his suggestion Now, Paul Levy, who actually was responsible for designing the actual flag, he got all these ideas, he said he was not aware of any religious connotation. Mm. Be that as it may, it's interesting that the date of the flag's adoption, 8th of December 1955, coincided with the Catholic Feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I believe it was the German Christian Democrats who pushed this to be part of the flag. You say, well, what's the relevance of this regarding Israel? I think the relevance of this is that the European Union, it is going to be the base for the Antichrist, the revised Roman Empire. I don't mean all twenty. And twenty-eight countries are gonna be involved, because there's gonna be ten. But the European Union right now is very, very shaky. Politically, economically, it is very, very shaky. And with all these migrants coming in, there's <laughs> there's a lot of disunity in how to handle all this stuff. So don't be surprised if nations will get out of it. Britain is very soon to have a a referendum on it, and there may be other countries do that as well before it's all over. But the European Union, the countries within the European Union, particularly the close ones in Europe that we know, that will be the base for the Antichrist. That will be his base. And already, anti-Semitism is rising dramatically within the European Union. It always was within Europe. Because when Hitler decided to destroy the Jews, nobody lifted a finger to help them. So it's always been there. It's always been deep-rooted there. And now it's on the rise in Hungary, even in Sweden. In fact, I read a, <laughs> I read a thing in the Internet today uh, where they, within the Labour Party. And there's lots of anti-Semites in the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, has got a big, big problem in his hands. And one of them tweeted, who's a Muslim, who tweeted just yesterday, I think it was, Now she's been suspended when it came to light, and she says, Hitler was a great man. And she says, I hope that Iran gets a nuclear bomb, and here's the word, to wipe Israel off the map. So that is still rampant today. It's still rife today between the Muslims and between anti-Semites. Within Europe, the Antichrist is going to have a base there. And so we need to keep our eyes open and see what's happening around us because things can move very, very fast indeed. All right. That's all you're getting tonight, folks. That's all I have to give you tonight. And that's us finished with that, at least for some time anyway. There may be other things that will come to our attention later, and we'll share them, but that's enough for now. All right, so hope that over this past two Sundays that you've got something to inform you to make you a little bit wiser so that when you're watching the news, that you can read behind the headlines and you can see what's really going on. And believe me, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is one olive tree. There is one flock. There is one family. And we're part of it. And we bless you for your mercies that brought us into that state. We thank you for the cross of your son that made it possible. And Lord, we do pray for the nation of Israel. We thank you that your covenant with them will not fail. But we pray more than that. We pray for their salvation. We pray that the day will be hastened in which all Israel will be saved. We thank you for those who are working amongst them, sharing the gospel. We pray for blessing. We pray for success. We thank you for the Messianic congregations, for the Arab Christian congregations, or for the Palestinian Christian congregations. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless and multiply. And, Lord, that your word and your gospel will go through all Israel. So we give you thanks for it, Lord. We pray for your hand to be upon them and wisdom for their government. Because, Lord, they're just men at the end of the day and they're secular, many of them. But, Lord, they need your wisdom and how to handle things. And so we pray for your peace to be upon Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen thank you for listening to this podcast you can also watch the sermon of the month video at youtube.com forward slash moira pentecostal or download the sermon video through our itunes video podcast for more information visit us at www.mpc.org.uk